Henry Nguyen is an interesting character. Some would even question his Christianity because he almost is kind of a spiritual mystic. Uh, being eclectic might be too strong a word, but there was a comment I ran across from him this week that I thought was interesting. I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something 10 times more attractive to choose. Saying no to my lust, my greed, my needs, and the world's powers takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all my energies to saying yes. He goes on in his statement to say this, one such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I am greatly loved. Once I have found that in my total brokenness, I am still loved, I become free from the compulsion of doing successful things. Obviously, the background for that or the framework is God's love because we learn how to love in the way God loved when we learn how to receive his love. Sometimes that's hard because our brokenness and our experiences and sometimes the betrayal of our own families have taught us that people don't love us. And we sometimes struggle with loving others because the fact is we don't know how to do it. One of the greatest demonstrations of God's love is when he sent his son. I don't know if any of us can even begin to appreciate the, the fact that the triune God who enjoyed all of eternity in this, this perfect fellowship and harmony and love and compassion and just fellowship, all of a sudden it changes when the Son takes to himself flesh and blood. He comes and, and takes to himself flesh and blood and becomes fully human apart from sin and becomes like us in all of our limitations and he sets aside all those divine perfections that allow him to sovereignly know everything and he limits himself to live in such a way that's like the way we need to live. And as we step into the Gospel of Mark, we have talked about uh, how he is being introduced onto the scene in front of Israel as the one who is coming as their Messiah. But God knows well enough that you can't just spring things on people because they won't accept it, uh, just like you and I. Uh, unless you're a really early adopter, you're you know, the one who says, hey, there's something new, I gotta buy it because I wanna be the first one that says, I've got it. There's a few of you around. The rest of us are kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like when I got LASIK surgery. Yeah, I want them to mess around with the first 30,000 before I go in just to make sure they get it right. But when Christ comes on the scene and God not only introduces him through John, who is trying to prepare Israel to receive this demonstration of God's love and this Messiah that will redeem them and save them, he's got at least a six-month runway. He was six months older than Jesus, and Mark doesn't talk a lot about Jesus' childhood. In fact, in the text that we're looking at today, what took Matthew like 12 verses to talk about, he takes two. So the audience that he's writing to probably wouldn't care whether he was the Jewish Messiah in the sense of the kinds of temptation. He just doesn't go into those kinds of details. And yet it's important enough where Mark introduces it to his readers, and I suspect they're to some degree saying, listen, this Jesus, he isn't just any ordinary person, he's a survivor. He's got a certain toughness about him and a certain resilience that just, he's just not going to disappear. And so he says some things that you don't read in the other Gospels, like for instance, we'll talk about it briefly this morning, that he was in the wilderness for 40 days, but he also dwelt with the wild animals, which seems like, yeah, like, who cares? Like, I've got a pet snake at home or something. Like, what, what is that supposed to mean? And, and yet, there's certain things that Mark is trying to reveal to his writers 
that, that is critical. And what we need to understand from God's perspective is that this key to the redemptive plan that he has set in place, embodied in his son as he sends him to earth, has to be executed with immaculate precision. One bad mistake on Jesus' part and the whole thing goes down the tubes. One small error, as it were, one sin, one wrong turn, one bad choice, and God's plan is completely tabled in terms of its ability to really deal with the the critical problems that we have. And so this is is the step that he takes into in Mark chapter one when he says this, and I'm back uh, stepping to verse nine just to keep the context in mind. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. In many ways, this is kind of Jesus' inauguration. Uh, when we went to, I went to college, they sort of had what do they call frosh week for all the freshmen to get picked on. This isn't quite the same thing. Uh, in fact, if I was Jesus, this would seem like a strange kind of scenario that all of a sudden he's baptized, getting ready to launch into ministry. He has the great affirmation of the Father and the first thing that happens is he gets driven into the wilderness for 40 days. I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of going like, I'm not sure this is what I signed up for. Like, what's this about? Now, most of us would probably go, well, he's Jesus. He already knew all this stuff. Well, maybe. Maybe not. If he took to himself flesh and blood, remember, we've, we've sort of bypassed the first 30 years of his life. So he was probably a kid running around doing things. We know he's a pretty smart kid because at 12 he was in debating with the scribes and the Pharisees uh, in his father's house, as he refers it to, about the nuances of the law. And they were stunned by his brilliance and his mental acumen to understand the law. And so he's no ordinary individual, so there's certain awareness that Jesus has that other people don't even have about him. He's very self-aware of who he is. And yet he's also chosen to limit himself to operate the way God is going to operate with us. And so as he steps into the wilderness, it would seem like a strange element. And for some of us, if we're actually listening to the text, and especially if we're comparing it to something like Matthew, there's all kinds of questions that come out of this, all of which we cannot deal with entirely. But what we wanna do is notice that the, not, that, that the heartbeat of this is really a, a chance to see whether Jesus is gonna live under the authority of the Father. Everything about these two verses, everything that you read in Matthew, is really going to be a challenge as to whether Jesus is gonna have the character and the spiritual resilience to choose to live to the Father's glory or he's gonna to default to protecting his own self-interest. We know that 40 days in the wilderness, as Matthew talks about it, was a time of fasting. And that after 40 days, you should try it sometime, not eating any food for 40 days and see how you're doing. It is a brutal and excruciating journey of having all basic needs sort of withdrawn. And at the same time, then he's coupled with the problem of Satan going full on attack to try to leverage his needs to abandon 
when no one else is around and looking, to abandon this idealism that the Father has for him, to listen, no one's looking, no one's gonna care, turn these stones into bread. If you're really the Son of God and you wanna prove who you are, here's the opportunity to do it. And yet Jesus is one who's going to demonstrate that it's not about him proving himself, it's not about him being successful, it's about the reality that any servant of God has to be able to live under the authority of the Father or they're gonna be useless. And if you can't see where that's going, let me sort of tell you the end of the story here. For us as believers, if we call ourselves servants of Jesus, the only way that we're gonna ever be effective is when we can live under the authority of the Father. If we don't know how to do that, then we're gonna struggle deeply with this idea of the Christian life. Because we wanna set our own prime meridian that my idea of success in life is gonna be over here and I'm gonna set my own line in the sand to say this is success is from my prime meridian, not from God's spiritual one. And the only reason this becomes significant is because Jesus, as regardless of who he is in one sense, shows that he's one who's willingly can submit to the Father's purpose and plan and process in an astounding manner that we need to follow that kind of example. The inauguration of God's servants, at least in this text, starts with the Spirit of God, and it's fascinating to look at this. The Spirit immediately drove him or compelled him into the wilderness. And I will immediately sort of give you the answer at the end of this, is that one of the marks of an individual who's going to be a servant as demonstrated by Jesus is a person who knows how to walk and live by the Spirit of God. I mean, the compelling argument's gonna be here is that this isn't just propaganda or show or rhetoric or whatever else you wanna call it just to kind of impress people. These are things that was an essential step for Jesus because as a human being, he's not gonna live out the mission of the Father unless he is indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of the living God. I mean, it's, it makes sense because that's what Jesus said when he left is, listen, you're not gonna be abandoned. We're not gonna leave you as an orphan. I'm gonna send you a helper who is everything that you need in order to live out this Christian life, and he's called the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that we become immediately confronted with is that as Jesus is this servant, he begins by the Spirit of God driving him. Now, does that mean Jesus was like, hey, I'm not, I don't wanna go here, and he was like dragging him by the shirt out into the wilderness. Well, that's not, it's, it's an interesting term, it is used in a lot of different places, mostly when Jesus casts demons out of people. So the, the word that's used here to drive or expel is the same word as when Jesus expels or casts out a demon from a person that they're afflicting. It's used about 11 times that particular way. And so the Spirit of God is the one who compels Jesus into this wilderness. And it's, it's literally a statement that's meant to be so powerful that there's no mistake in understanding what needs to be done. It's not like, are you sure you wanna do this? It's not the Moses syndrome. You know, we wanna go and deliver Egypt, and you're my man. I don't think so, I think you've kinda of messed this up. I mean, that was compelling, but typical human being, he was trying to find all the excuses not to do it, but the Spirit of God compels and expels and drives Jesus into the wilderness. And so it tells us very much that the spirit of the living God is part of God's plan in terms of how his son was to live out this redemptive process. And clearly, if I don't get to it, 
that's absolutely indispensable for you and I. And if we don't understand how to walk in the Spirit, to allow Him to indwell our life, to fill us and to be compelled, as it were, to live the way Jesus did, we're gonna set our own primary and we're gonna try to do it on our own strength and our own ingenuity and our own creativity. We're, we think we've got it figured out. And we'll, we will stumble and trip and run into obstacles and become our own worst enemy when it comes to living the Christian life because it will be inept and powerless and a constant struggle because we're setting the prime meridian in our life, not allowing God to do it. And so Jesus becomes this one whom the Spirit came down like a dove to rest upon him. I believe it's a picture of the indwelling presence now of the Spirit of God in him. And the first thing he does is drive him out into the wilderness. Not exactly what I would call my first ministry choice. I mean, what, what, I'm out here and alone in the wilderness. All we've got is wild animals and critters and scorpions and hyenas. What's the deal with this? And so the, the inauguration begins with this purpose where he drives them into the wilderness and Jesus, in a sense, doesn't have a choice. And he was out there for 40 days. We know that if we compare it to Matthew, he makes it pretty clear here. He's out there for a duration by himself. And clearly, as we begin to sort of put this together, while Mark doesn't say anything, any hint of fasting, it's pretty clear in Matthew that he was, and the fact that the angels come and minister to him at the end of this journey, in almost every case when you put these scenarios together, the, the angels come to people and provide nourishment and food. We see that in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, 40 is an interesting term. It's related to the flood story. Remember, if you remember, they were floating around for 40 days, 40 nights. It was uh, the wit uh, part of the 40 years in the wilderness when it, Israel decided that, yeah, living by faith isn't kind of our style. We want to like, have a little bit more say in this. And God says, fine, you can have all the say you want. We're going for a hike. And, and God used the 40 years in the wilderness to peel out all the people who did not want to live by faith till he could raise up another generation that actually will live by faith. And 40 is, uh, was part of Elijah's flight without food. He had taken off and went and hid because he was scared even after a spiritual triumph. The, 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 the idea of 40 days is kind of a unique scenario. You can see it as being a, a massive testing time in terms of the different life and the process of Israel and other individuals. And Jesus was willing to accept this as part of God's process and training in his life. You know, I don't know about you, but I always get confused if the Spirit of God drives me into an environment that feels like a spiritual wilderness. I mean, because the idea is, is we've talked ourselves into saying, well, if, if I'm going to be used of God, like, yeah, I went to school, got my degree, all that kind of stuff. Now, I want to hit a place where we can see God do amazing things, and then I can make, you know, the newspapers and the headlines and write books and really be important. Our first pastorate that I took was in a little place called Leslieville, Alberta. I had three streets. No, I'm sorry, two and a half streets. Three of the streets became two at the end because they didn't have room because of the farmland. They had one grocery store and a gas station. And I dragged my dear wife up there. Probably in her words, hopefully from Leslieville's listening, but in any event, 
And for her consideration, it was the worst place in the world that we could have ever gone. Because we got married when our honeymoon came back and we went straight into ministry. I've been there about four months. And they had very traditional ideas about what a pastor's wife should do. And I think for my wife, it felt like an incredible wilderness. But this is where God had us at that particular time. But the danger for many of us as Christians is that it's very easy for us to complain where God has us. I don't, I don't like the place you've put me in. I don't like this process that I'm going through. There's too much wilderness around here. There's too many wild animals. I feel like I'm in harm's way. There's too much threats going on. And, and we easily can, instead of allowing God to do his work through his spirit in that process, can often fight God because I don't like where you've brought me. And yet every one of us need to recognize there's times in our life where we feel like we're in a wilderness. We're, we're wandering in a place. I can't be useful here. There's no productivity here. I don't get the why I'm here. And it's easy to, to use the very thing that God wants us to do that he's led us into by his spirit and we start fighting God because I don't like where I'm at. And yet you never hear Jesus complaining ever in the accounts that we have here. He was simply in this place and, and I suspect that he may have known very specifically because Matthew points it out and we'll talk about it in a minute that the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness for the very purpose of being tempted by the devil. Which raises all kinds of interesting questions for us. But God's purpose was that Jesus was to start off this sense of ministry with this sense of being in a wilderness. And God's going to do three things. He's going to train him, and we'll talk about that in a minute. He's going to test him, and he's going to allow him to be tempted. Those are some of the things that people would say, well, God would never do that to me. I've heard it time and again, whether it's the circumstances of feeling like they're in a wilderness or whether it's the way the wild animals are treating them, wild animals being usually people that we are very antagonistic towards or seem hostile to us, or it may be some other kinds of things, but it's like God couldn't possibly want me here. And if there's anything that Mark points out is that that's exactly where God had his son. And if that's true about his son, there's times in life that he might have us in exactly the same place for very different reasons than what you think. And yet, instead of being accepting of the process, of his training in our life and his testing, and even at times allowing us to be tempted by Satan for some bizarre reason, we like to fight back. So God had a plan to test his son, and we'll delve into that. The priority was to train his son, and God permitted Satan to tempt his son. You know, when God makes this great announcement, this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, I could see the scribes and the Pharisees going like, well, so what? What has he done? He's not a Pharisee, a scribe, so he's got no credentials, he's got no education, no training, and so like... Who is this guy? You can make all the claims you want about how fantastic he is, but like, what's he really like? I've, uh, on television, I saw one of the banks was offering a commercial that, that it's a no-brainer to go with their bank. 
You've probably seen it. If you haven't, they're just basically trying to say, it's absolutely a no-brainer to go with us because we're making this so easy that it would be ridiculously dumb to not go with us. As part of the commercial, they actually have a bunch of kids on a basketball court. And they're elementary school kids and they're picking teams and the two captains get up there and they're showing them getting ready to pick and then they swing the camera shot around and among the kids that are being picked is Charles Barkley standing there. And it's kind of like, what is he doing there? And so the first kid gets up and he goes, well, I'm gonna pick Charles. And he comes over, great. And, and his final saying to them once the teams are picked is he goes, give me the ball every time. See, the idea of God's announcement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is a great endorsement, but like, we have no, how do we test whether this guy's got anything? Charles Barkley playing against elementary school kids is ludicrous. That's not a test of his skill at all. He's a professional basketball player. If you really want to see what he's made of, you put him with some professionals. And in a sense, that's what God's going to end up doing here. God could create some really easy tests and quiz to see whether he knows the Old Testament. That'd be kind of pointless too because he probably knew more than the scribes and Pharisees when he was 12. So what's the real test of someone like a servant who's gonna bring about redemption? Is it how much he knows or how much formal education that he's had or how much training he's been through? Is it, does it measure by how much money that he has? Because the Old Testament might give this impression that, well, if you give enough tithes, God will superabound and you'll be really rich. So what's the measure of his character? Well, God says, well, I know. We're gonna test him physically and emotionally and mentally. I'm gonna put him in a wilderness where he's gonna be there for 40 days and he's gonna feel the full weight of what it means to be dressed in human flesh and know all the limitations and the afflictions that go with it. But on top of that, I'm going to see whether in the midst of that, we're gonna train him through those sufferings, and I'll show you that in a minute, so that he will be demonstrated through his obedience to be the perfect one that I am well pleased with. And if we're really gonna put this to the test to show the quality of my son, I'm gonna allow Satan to come in and I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow him to tempt him at his greatest point of physical need as a human being and, then, and by doing so, I'm gonna allow you to see somebody that is heads and tails the most magnificent quality son that I could approve of. So God isn't sufficient to just say, well, let's just give him some elementary school tests and see whether Jesus can pass it. He puts him through a grueling process, and the first one is training. Hebrews 2.10 says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now you may say, well, I thought he was already perfect. But the idea is, is that we're all perfect till we have to make a choice between is this right or is that right? If God wants me to go this way but every compulsion of my human instinct says I go over here, my perfection is demonstrated that I'm willing by faith to choose what God says is right rather than give in to the compulsions of the flesh or my greed or my insecurity. Then all of a sudden now what was written on paper somehow becomes reality in the crucible of real life choices. And so Jesus comes on the scene and we are told from the scriptures that he learned obedience from what he suffered, or in other words, when he was suffering, he made obedience to the Father his primary goal, regardless of the personal sacrifice or the personal cost. 
God's purpose was to demonstrate the quality of his son's character by facing real issues and choosing righteousness as God would define it. The training showed that Jesus, in real life, not hypothetical or theoretical or philosophical, but living in this real, broken, sinful, evil world, that Jesus was one who didn't just claim to be the Son of God, but he made choices that reflect that he was the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, if he'd given in to Satan's temptation, if he had cra- uh, craved under all those situations and ended up making a bad choice, he would have disqualified himself from being this perfect lamb of God that was to offer a sacrifice. I mean, every temptation became this precarious sense of holding your breath from a human perspective, like, what's he gonna do? What's the right choice? Is he gonna do it? Because you and I both know in our own struggles against sin, we can say, hey, if I was in that situation, I'd never do that. Until Satan comes along and blindsides us with something that he knows is our weakness and we cave into something much lesser when we're taking pride in the, in the bigger things that we know that we wouldn't fail at. That's why it's really hard to get judgmental with one another. Because we need the encouragement from one another to say, listen, I'm as broken as you are. I've failed and I've stumbled and I've struggled in times of sin just like you have. And we need to keep pointing ourselves to Jesus and his example and to embrace the power of his spirit to to take us whatever direction he feels is appropriate for us so God can train us how to be obedient even when we're suffering. And so it becomes appropriate. So that's the training part. The testing part is really the quality of his character. They're in some respects inseparable but one's kind of like on-the-job training. What's, what are you really going to do? It's like, you know, I went through engineering and got a certificate. I had all the information I had, and then you get in front of something in real life, and it's like, okay, what was that again? What was I supposed to do? <laughs> That's why they have internships. Because you can sit beside someone who's mastered it and say, no, not that one, this one. This is how it works in the real life. And sometimes we've stuffed our head full of all the right answers so we think we've got it all figured out until we're right in the crucible of of a really difficult family situation where I feel like I have to make choices. And then it's a whole different question about what righteousness looks like. But God planned to test the son to demonstrate the quality of his character, the resilience of his mindset, and his resolve to live under the Father's authority. Because this is all part of the leading of the Spirit, of God's process to, to, to work and train him so that he would indeed be that perfect salvation. Do you remember God's interaction with Job? You might say, well, this thing with Satan is kind of disturbing to me. I thought God, as James 3 would say, or James 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, which can also be translated as temptation, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
And yet, when we go back to the book of Job, we see that God is standing there with Satan having this discussion, and God says, have you noticed my servant Job? And God basically does the same thing with Job as he did with Jesus. He just puts it in different words. I'm well pleased with him because he turns away from evil and lives righteously. Satan goes, I'm not impressed. You've put a nice little hedge of protection. You've made him wealthy. He's got lots of kids. He's got lots of money. You've put this little hedge of protection around him. By the way, that's, that's an interesting thing we've carried over into prayer. You notice we do that a lot? Lord, put a hedge of protection around people. I don't know, I'm still not sure whether that's good or bad, to be honest. Satan's accusing God of like, you're, you're making life so soft for him, of course he serves you. Anybody who's got everything made, and, and they've got all the wealth, and they've got their family, and they've got all this put together, of course they'll serve you. They'll just look at it as, you're giving them all this stuff, but you take it away from him, and then we'll see what he's really made out of. And God gives Satan permission to go after Job. And even his wife caves in the process. Look, just dump this. This is stupid. Just curse God and die. This is ridiculous. I don't want to be a caregiver for you anymore. And yet, God, while he doesn't do the tempting, and he never tempts anyone to do evil, he permitted Satan to touch Job's life, but God's purpose was there to say, I'm gonna demonstrate the quality of my servant. This is, he's not gonna fail. Just like he said with his son, I know my son's not gonna fail. I'm gonna gonna do this to demonstrate the quality of his character, his resilience to live under my authority and to do what's right. I have no problem taking him through whatever test you can throw at him because I know my son. And yet it confuses us sometimes if God ever gave Satan permission to touch our life. The question you have to answer is, is there any other way that it happens? Does Satan just have free will to go and whack on whoever he wants? Or especially with God's servants, does God actually at times give permission for Satan to touch their life? Well, there's two examples here that would say he does. Which is difficult for us because it's kind of like, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't do that to me. He wouldn't put me in a wilderness, have me go through all kinds of physical and emotional suffering and then give Satan permission to go whack on me in the midst of that because God wouldn't do that. Where would he? Well, God would be completely unfair. That's not God, because James says that he won't tempt anybody. But I can prove to you that he's not. He's given permission for Satan to test his son, but God's not doing the tempting. God's going, listen, you can throw whatever test you want at him, and here's probably the most severe test that can happen, and I'm gonna show you the quality of my son because he's gonna keep choosing righteousness. Now, Satan's goal is I'm gonna wreck this guy because this is the end of me if I don't succeed here. And so Satan is given permission to tempt Jesus, as we're told here in Mark. But his whole purpose is completely different than the Father's because he wants to derail the whole process. If 
Have you ever doubted whether God's on your side or not? Because the, the statement that follows here is that Mark goes, oh yeah, and Jesus was living with the wild animals. Really? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it, the word with actually has about the idea of living with or among them. It doesn't say that he set up traps and speared the hyenas when they came to attack him. There doesn't seem to be any conflict at all. Some commentators will actually run to the point of saying, well, Adam and Eve were with wild animals, as it were. They were in a completely different environment and lived at peace with them, and so Christ coming into this environment is at peace with even the wild animals. But he mentions it for a reason, for some reason. And to be honest, at times, it's maybe a little tricky, but one of the things that would seem to be is the power of Jesus' presence creates a commanding influence even on wild animals, that he lived with them. Of course, I don't know about you, I'd be sitting there going, you know, naming the animals, giving them names, telling them to knock off fighting with one another. But if I was Jesus, I'd been going like, like, what are we doing? And I'm purely extrapolating an anthropomorphic self-brokenness on this. If you know what that means, I'm just making it up, okay? <laughs> like, I've been, in this, I've been in this wilderness for 35 days. I'm getting along with the animals. My body's sort of wasting away because I haven't eaten any food. From a human perspective, it's got to be absolutely grueling. And if it was me, I'd be going like, I don't know if I signed up for this. What, could, what in the world possible purpose could God have through this? But it seems apparent that when life is the hardest, that's when God can approve the character of your heart when you're willing to not cave in to do just what meets your needs, but to do what's righteous to do what honors him, to do what says, I trust you so implicitly, I'm willing to live under your authority and go through the process, no matter how grueling this is, because I trust you. And most of us would go, well, where have you been for the last 35 days? And God said, I have a plan, I'm training you to be obedient even in the midst of suffering, even when life isn't fair, even when it's not going your way. And Jesus models this in profound ways. There's times in life that Mother Teresa felt like God had abandoned her. The story's told that one day she had been walking along the streets of Calcutta searching for a house where she could start her work and ministry. At the end of the day, she wrote in her diary, I wandered the streets the whole day. My feet are aching and I have not been able to find a home. And I also get the tempter telling me, leave all this, go back to the convent from which you came. Eventually, Mother Teresa found her home, the Missionaries of Charity, which today feeds 500,000 families a year in Calcutta alone. Treats 90,000 leprosy patients and educates 20,000 children. 
See, this testing period and this trial period is gonna show the quality of his son because it's not about just his personal survival. It's about transforming hundreds and thousands and millions of lives because of his work on the cross. And sometimes our own pride and arrogance needs to be whittled away at and sometimes the only way God can get to it is through hardship and suffering and circumstances that feel like you're in a wilderness. Because you and I both know it, that's usually the place where our faith makes it or breaks it. And it's not a pleasant journey because when life doesn't seem fair and it's not going the way I think God should be operating, it's really hard to walk by the Spirit. It's really difficult to implicitly trust Him. And then he says at the end that the angels came and served Jesus. Wow, he survived. Jesus isn't some wimpy guy who's just a bookworm who doesn't know how to handle himself in real life. I mean, he's a survivor. God's angels are his messengers that serve God's purpose and are very active in the world. In fact, Hebrews chapter one tells us this. He's referring to his son, but he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then he's referring to the angels by saying, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Makes it pretty clear that God's angels show up all the way through the scriptures to serve people like Elijah and give him nourishment and food when he was at the end of his rope. They come and serve and probably give nourishment to Jesus when after 40 days of fasting and going through these severe temptations and, and his spiritual resilience is set firmly on the prime meridian of living under the authority of his father and, and honoring that no matter what the personal cost is. And so the angels come and, you know, again, it's easy for me to think of these things because I know this is what I would do and I know it's maybe something you'd do too. Oh, I don't need help, I'm good, I can handle it. But it's amazing that God's son, even though he's going to be the savior of the world, apparently was accepting of the ministry of the angels to serve his needs at that particular time. Churches are full of egomaniacs who go like, nope, I don't need anything, I can handle everything myself. Don't need help, willing to help others, but no, no, I'm good, I can handle it. Meanwhile, their spiritual life is crumbling, their family's a mess, their kids are gone AWOL, and they have no idea whether God's abandoned them or not. But even the Son of God allowed the angels to come alongside and nourish and minister to him. I always think in contrast to Matthew 26 when he told Herod, he says, I could call tens of thousands of legions of angels and wipe this place off the map if I wanted to. And now he's being served and ministered to by angels who are coming alongside and saying, listen, we know you've been through this almost unbearable, grueling experience and we're here to, your father sent us at this time, not before, but at this time to move alongside you and give you the nourishment and the strength and the encouragement. Now, if I was me, I was kind of like, well, it would have been nice if you showed up 30 days ago, right? Like, why weren't you here back then? Well, if I was extrapolating this, I said, well, I would have been the angel. I would have said, well, the Father just had some things that you needed to work through. 
He was still training you to live in obedience. He was still demonstrating the quality of your character. He was allowing Satan to tempt you because he believed so much in who you are that he knew you would be resilient through this. But here's the reward is we're going to come and we're going to care for you. We're going to nourish you back to health. See, this is no simple pomp and circumstance. This isn't rhetoric or propaganda. It's not speech making. God took his son through this process and there's four simple things I want to remind you of. Jesus surrendered to the Father's authority by relying on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just a hypersensitive moral conscience. He is the one that indwells us and empowers us to live out righteousness in every circumstances, even when we're in the wilderness and even when we feel like life is unfair. And we might even suggest that the people around me are acting like animals. But anyone who's going to be a servant of the living God, like Jesus, needs to know the power and the presence and the encouragement and the empowerment of the spirit of the living God indwelling in them, or they're, they're going to set this whole prime meridian on what they think that should happen and not what God wants. Jesus surrenders to the Father's authority by willingly going through the training, testing, and temptation as directed and permitted by the Father. See, you have to have some sense that God's fingerprints are on the journey of my life when it's going well and when it's not going well because if you think God's abandoned you when things aren't going well and that's the obvious indication of it, then we're kind of saying, I'm on my own. I don't know about you. Why do I want to be on my own trying to handle this? Don't I want all the resources of God to be with me? Isn't, isn't, don't I need that? Jesus surrenders to the Father's authority by faithfully choosing God's priorities, purpose, and plan over his personal needs. Jesus was willing to allow others, the angels, to serve him when he was in need. And some of these things need to be true of our life. Now, we have to take the old, well, I can't do it as perfectly as Jesus did. Yeah, we already know that. That's not an excuse not to learn how to trust him. It ought to be an incentive for us to learn how to live by faith in more significant ways. But truly, anyone who claims to be a servant of God must live according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And yet, for many of us, he's kind of like a misnomer. He's kind of like just a glorified conscience. God's servants will face tests and temptations. In fact, it's pretty clear in here that the Spirit of God led Jesus into that context for that very purpose. The rub usually gets is, I thought God was there to serve me and help my life to be comfortable, as opposed to God wants to reshape my heart so that I can be useful. God will train and test his servants to fulfill his purpose, and he often does it in the university of real-life circumstances. If you can't see God's fingerprints in your life in some of the most difficult challenges of life, that would be a terrifying place to be. 
And maybe that's why in our culture, fear and anxiety is running off the charts. Not just in the world, but often in times in many Christians' lives. God allows his servants to be tempted in order to produce high-quality servants. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's not the, the success in God's kingdom work isn't always built around my spiritual gifts or my competencies or my skills or abilities. It's built on my willingness to walk faithfully with the Spirit of God and, and, and resist temptation. Read an article about parenting and how much it's changed. Now, obviously, I can't speak for everybody, but I do have someone in our family who's a professional teacher in a public system. One of the things Jesus simply does in this temptation, even though Mark doesn't go into it, is that Jesus had the ability actually to say, no, I'm not doing that. There's a lot of parenting that goes on now where parents have no idea how to say no. That's why we have kids that don't know how to live under authority because we've got parents who don't know how to say no. Just like Jesus said no to temptation, parents don't know how to say no to temptation themselves and they don't know how to teach their kids how to say no. <laughs> I read a story about baseball this week. It's actually when Fidel Castro, uh, Cuba's former dictator, uh, got into some kind of baseball game with um, Venezuela's Cuban dictator, uh, Hugo Chavez. They had some kind of, I don't know, heads of state thing they were doing as uh, some kind of propaganda. And uh, Castro got up to bat, and so without being looking bad, Chavez went to the pitcher's mound and uh, wanted to pitch. So he, Castro stood up there. The first pitch didn't even make the plate, so it was ball one. Second one came over the plate, and apparently Castro took a massive swing at it and missed, so it was strike one. There was two more balls and then a failed bunt attempt, so it was a full count, three and two. And Chavez threw the ball, went right over the plate, and Castro apparently didn't even swing at it, and the umpire went, strike three, you're out. Castro turned around and went, no, one, no, it wasn't, it was a ball. And he walked all the way down to first base and stood there, and not one person protested. The umpire didn't say anything. Chavez didn't say anything. The teams didn't say anything. It's kind of like, who's going to say anything? Sometimes we're a lot like that with God. We think we control the marbles on the table and that we have a right to tell God how this is going to work. And so when God wants to lead us into the wilderness and he wants to test and train us, we come back saying, no, that's, you're throwing a ball there. That doesn't count. And I get a free pass to first base regardless of what your process is and what your rules are. I got news for you. That's not going to work very long. And yet sometimes in our Christian life, we think we can dictate to God what the rules are on how he needs to work with us rather than the other way around. The Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by the devil where he lived with the wild animals and then was served by angels. Do you trust God enough to take you through whatever process he wants you to take you through so that you can become 
a servant that is powerfully usable to God because you can live under his authority and honor him first. Father,